We've got a Bible, we can turn to Mark chapter 10. I want to remind y'all, mighty men, on Wednesday, 6.30 to 8, we'd love you to sign up if you're coming so we can make sure we have enough food. That's monthly-ish gathering for people who are actively engaging in your calling. We call that doing your deal. If you're trying to figure that out, we want you to come as well. We'll have a spot for you, hopefully, to share a little bit and discern what God may be saying to you. And then also, if your thing is encouraging other people and praying for them, we'd love for you to come. So that's Wednesday at 6.30. You can sign up online. All right, we're going to put a pause on 2 Samuel until after Easter. It was a good stopping point. We just looked at David's highlight reel, chapters 5 through 10, and it's about to get really bad. And I didn't want to talk about Bathsheba over Easter. So we'll... we'll uh, <laughs> but we may just pretend that that part's not in there. So what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is focus more intently on Easter. Many of you are fasting during Lent. You're preparing your heart for Easter. Uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday. That's the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. And so we'll look at that story of him uh, walking into or riding into Jerusalem as a king next week. Uh, today, we want to look at the scene before the scene. This is maybe maybe two weeks before his death, maybe a week, uh, three days, four days before Palm Sunday as he is preparing um, to enter Jerusalem as a king. So we're going to read, starting Mark 10, verse 32, three different scenes here. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests, uh, over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will, excuse me, they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. So Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He has a crowd with him. Uh, they're moving towards Jerusalem because of um, Passover. It's one of the three major Jewish festivals, one of the three times a year that all the Jews would gather in Jerusalem for worship. And Passover was the biggest. It was the most popular. So there's a crowd, we'll call them pilgrims, who are moving towards Jerusalem with Jesus. And as a part of that crowd, he's got his 12 disciples with him also. The crowd in general, we read, they're afraid. They're uh, that root behind that word, or the, 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 the base image of that word is fleeing from something. But the disciples, those 12, they're astonished. And the, kind of the root behind that word or the image is this idea of being uh, immovable. It's almost like you're, you're dumbstruck or awestruck and you can't move because of what you're experiencing. And then Jesus pulls his 12 aside and he tells them for the third time, this is what's going to happen to me. And he talks about his being arrested and being handed over to Jewish authorities who then hand him over to Gentile authorities where he would be tortured and killed and then raised again on the third day. It's the third time he's done it. This is very specific. The most detail you'll see there up on the screen. There's six separate, you can call them prophetic statements that Jesus makes and all of them are fulfilled within just a couple of weeks time. I don't think any of the 12 understood based on their reaction at Jesus's death. They didn't I don't know what was going on. They're not dumb. So I don't know what they were processing when he was saying these words, but it wasn't what he meant. They, they didn't make the connection. This, again, is the third time that he has 
told them what was going to happen. This is by far the greatest level of detail he's gone into, but they still just don't, it just doesn't compute uh, in their minds. And again, I, I don't know what, I don't know how else you can hear I'm going to be killed other than he's going to be killed, but for whatever reason, they're not connecting the dots there. So then with that as our backdrop, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must become slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this backdrop, Jesus has pulled the twelve aside, and he's told them in the midst of this crowd moving towards Jerusalem, hey, here's what's going to happen. I do think that there's something in the air. They're picking up on something, they're sensing something, hearing something in his voice that is uh, indicating to them uh, there's a difference. In Mark, there's this uh, that people call it the messianic secret. It's this idea that when Jesus heals somebody, then he says, don't tell anyone. And you see that primarily in Mark. He works a miracle, and the person who receives the miracle, he says, don't let anybody know that it was me. And they, they always tell anyway. But he asks them not to. He's trying to keep his identity a secret. And it seems like now, towards as we move towards his triumphal entry, where he, it's obviously a very public display of him saying, I'm the king, that's what we'll talk about next week on Palm Sunday. The, those who are closest to him seem to have picked up on some shift in his attitude. And James and John, those are two of his three, three closest friends along with Peter, they come to him and they say, Hey, when you come into your glory, let us, give us the two seats of honor. Again, they, they seem to be picking up on something. They're moving towards Jerusalem, the place where... In Jewish world, kings are crowned, and maybe they're sensing in him this willingness to uh, be public about his identity that up to this point, he just hasn't shown. I don't know, but in this moment, as they're approaching Jerusalem, it seems like they're thinking something has changed in him. And so they take advantage of the opportunity, and they go to him and say, when you're, when you're the king, when you come into your glory, when you're the king... You keep us in mind. Remember, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus' response to me is very interesting. I've been thinking about it for a while, and I haven't quite, I haven't plumbed the depths yet. Maybe you'll be able to get farther than me as you uh, think about it. His response, I think the umbrella, this response is, you don't know what you're asking for. I don't think he says it harshly. I don't think this is a rebuke of James and John. There are times where Jesus rebukes his disciples, and the Bible plainly says Jesus rebuked his disciples. Or we can tell by the words that he uses. He's like, you of little faith, or how much longer do I have to put up with y'all? I mean, you can hear the frustration in his voice by the word choice. That doesn't, to me, I don't pick up on that here. You may. I don't see that here. I don't see him rebuking them for saying, 
let us sit at your left and let us sit at your right. What I think he's saying is, y'all don't, y'all don't know what you're asking for. I think it's more like that. You don't know what you're saying you want. And then he says, in our language, our world, he would say, can you walk a mile in my shoes? Can, can you do that? Can you drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? And when we read that, those phrases, we, we hear suffering in that because we live on this side of the cross. And so we know what the next 10 days, 14 days of his life is going to look like. I don't think James and John have any clue that Jesus is speaking about suffering. For them, it's a pretty big deal for them to acknowledge Jesus as king, for them to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And there is no box for a suffering Messiah in a Jewish mindset at this point. We see it clearly on this side of the resurrection. We look back, particularly at like something like Isaiah 53, and we can see the Messiah would suffer. But prior to the crucifixion, that wasn't in, any, that wasn't in anybody's mind. Messiah is someone like a Moses, someone like a David, someone who leads people to freedom, who destroys the enemy with a sword or with miracles from God. They're not ones who suffer and die. And this is Passover time, and Exodus is the backdrop for Passover and deliverance of the, the Hebrew slaves from Egypt with Moses. That's the backdrop. So all of that's in the atmosphere. And in the midst of that, James and John seem to say, hey, I think you're Something's shifting, and we want to be at your left and your right hand. And Jesus says, y'all don't know what you're asking for. Do y'all think you can walk a mile in my shoes? And they don't understand what he's saying. And they're like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And then he says, well, you're going to. And again, they don't know what he's saying. Both James and John are persecuted for their faith. James gets his head cut off because he's a follower of Jesus. That happens in Acts, I think, chapter 12, somewhere in there. Jesus is saying, y'all are going to suffer. That's, they, that's not, they're talking, they're using the same words that are meaning two different things. You are going to walk a mile in my shoes. You are going to suffer, but it's not my job to decide who sits at my left and my right. If it's a party, I'm the guest of honor. The father's the host, and he's already given everybody a place card. And that's, that's not my responsibility in this. So he's saying to them, no, I can't, I can't do that. And then the ten are indignant with James and John. And the reason they're indignant is because they beat the rest of them to Jesus. They all wanted it. They just got there first. At Jesus' second prediction of his death in Mark chapter 9, afterwards the disciples are kind of mumbling on the road. And Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about? Why were you all arguing on the road and they're embarrassed? And they don't want to tell because they were arguing about who's the greatest. This is a recurring theme for them. And so all 12 of them, they want those two seats. Just James and John boxed them out. They got there first. And so they're indignant with them. And Jesus says, hold on, time out. Let, let me reset. Again, I don't think it's a, re, a rebuke. I think it's a redirection or reorientation. Let me tell you about this kingdom. I, maybe there's some subtext there. Y'all are sensing that I'm, things have changed. Y'all recognize that I'm the Messiah. That's all the way back in Mark 8 when... Jesus says, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and that's Jesus' actually first prediction of his death. He says, yes, I'm going to suffer. And then Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. They just, they're not able to put those two pieces together, suffering and Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, hey, y'all are right that I'm going to be a king, but let me tell you what my kingdom looks like. And it doesn't look like the ones that you've known at all. And the kingdoms that you know, 
this, this Roman empire that we live in, this Gentile kingdom. There's an emperor and he's got some friends and then there's a whole lot of people who are servants and slaves of the few. And those ones, the few, they lord it over, they exercise dominion and authority over the many. And if you're part of the many and you want to become part of the, th- the few, you've got to find some boots to lick. Because that's the only way up. That's not how it works in my kingdom. Everything's upside down. We've heard this for 2,000 years. It's lost its radical edge. But what Jesus is saying is you've got to be a slave. You've got to be a servant to everyone. And I'm an example of that. As the greatest in this kingdom, I didn't come to have people serve me. I came to serve others, even to the point of dying for them. I am a deliverer, but not like David. I am a deliverer, but not like Moses. My deliverance comes through my death. I'm dying as a ransom to set everyone free. I don't conquer with the sword. I win by what looks like losing. And all of you benefit from that. You think about that. Find me a king who dies for his subjects. Find one anywhere. A king who willingly dies for his subjects. And not just those who are loyal to him. While we were still his enemies, he died for us. Find somebody like that. Find someone who displays that depth of love, even for people when they're enemies of his. doesn't just come to serve them, but to die on their behalf. Then they come to Jericho. It's a town 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Come up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. So Jericho, again, is the town about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. He spends some time there, according to Luke. That's, that's where he has lunch with Zacchaeus. I don't know how many, if he stayed just for a meal. don't know if he spent the night, but he's moving pretty quickly on to Jerusalem. He still has this huge throng of people with him. And as a beggar, it would make sense. He would set up on the outside of the city on a major Road, And it also makes sense that you would want to be there when all of these religious people are coming by because they're probably going to be a bit more generous than your average person. And so Bartimaeus is out there with his coat in front of him and he's begging. That's what he does. It's the only way he can make a living. And he hears that Jesus is coming. He's never obviously seen Jesus. There's no indication they've had any interaction before. But Jesus' reputation has preceded him. And Bartimaeus begins to call out to Jesus and he's being shushed. By people, I don't know why. It's not like it's a somber occasion at all. Again, you've got a huge crowd moving towards Jerusalem, I would think expectantly, towards the Passover festival. But for whatever reason, he's obnoxious or it's inappropriate. They're shushing Bartimaeus, and he doesn't have anything to do with it. He continues to yell. This is his opportunity. And Jesus says, call him to me. And I don't want to make too much of this, but I do think it's significant. Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside. That's the only thing he owns, most likely. It's, you know, y'all seen people maybe who've been, you know, playing guitar or they open their guitar case and you throw money in or they put their hat out. That's what, that's what his cloak is. People would throw money on that. So for him to throw that aside 
Think about what that says about his level of faith and confidence that Jesus is. He's whatever he's been given for the day, money-wise. And he tosses all that aside in order to get to Jesus. And then Jesus asks what to us is a fairly obvious question. What do you want me to do for you? Well, how, how about opening my eyes? And Bartimaeus says that. And Jesus heals him and he becomes part of the crowd. Part of that crowd moving towards Jerusalem. A few things. You can only grab onto one of these. Don't try to grab onto all three. Just whatever most resonates with you. That first scene, the backdrop. Jesus and the crowd moving to Jerusalem. The crowd is astonished and the disciples are amazed. Two different words from two different groups that are experiencing the same thing. They're experiencing the same events. Uh, the larger group is experiencing those things fearfully. They're afraid. The smaller group, the twelve, are amazed. They're astonished by those events. What's the difference between the crowd and the disciples? Their proximity to Jesus. The disciples have spent three years getting pulled aside by Jesus. More time with him, more instruction from him. They don't understand everything that he's saying, but they've had more of him at a deeper and closer level than the crowds. And so they, that word astonished is only used three times in Mark, and every time it's when Jesus is doing something new, and I think they're picking up. There's something new here. And they're amazed that this Jesus, who for three years has told everybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell them who worked the miracle, don't, be, don't spread any reports. For three years he's been doing that, and now he's not doing that, and they're sensing something maybe more public and more determined in his posture towards Jerusalem, and they're amazed by it. Something new is happening for you. Is the difference, possibly, between fear and amazement your proximity to Jesus? Is there an area of your life today where you would say, fear's got a grip on me? Maybe not every area, but one. Maybe there's some things in your company. Maybe there's a shakeup, and you're wondering if you're going to land on your feet. Something with your finances, with your children, with your health. You're waiting on a doctor to call you back, and you're in that limbo. Is it going to... What's the diagnosis going to be? Is there an area in your life where you're afraid? What would it look like for you to take a step towards Jesus? Not necessarily because those events will change. Everyone, the crowds and the disciples are experiencing the exact same events. But because proximity to him decreases fear and increases peace. The closer we are to him, the less room there is for fear to get a grip on our minds. And on our hearts. Is there a place today where you would say fear is winning? You can think of fear as worry amplified. Where are you anxious? Are you worried at a significant level about a particular relationship or circumstance in your life? What would it look like between now and Easter, these next couple of weeks, for you to make an intentional effort to draw close to Jesus? Your proximity to Him will decrease your anxiety. It'll decrease your worry. It'll decrease fear in your life. It'll increase peace and confidence. You still may not know what's going to happen, for sure. And the events may still play out the way they're going to. But your perspective on those events will change. I was thinking about that second scene with James and John. Again, I don't hear a rebuke uh, from Jesus. I hear him redirecting them, this idea of, the greatest is the one who serves or the slave of all. And then Jesus giving himself as a prime example of that, not just serving, but serving to the point of dying for others. 
In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of offerings, and they're really confusing for us to try to keep in, keep track of them. And it's just not our world, this animal sacrifices. There were a couple of offerings that were mandatory. Uh, two of those were a guilt offering and a sin offering, and those were required by God at particular times throughout the year and based on particular actions. It was very specific. If you're going to offer this sin offering or this guilt offering, this is, this is the animal that you bring, and this is what you do with it. And Jesus, really, he's the, he's the New Testament parallel to that sin offering and that guilt offering. His death is atoning. So when he says, can you drink this cup and can you be baptized with this baptism, the answer is yes and no. Yes, we can suffer, but no, it's way different. He's singular, and his mission is singular, and he's the only one whose death provides benefits for others, for us. He died to set us free. He's that sin offering or that guilt offering. The end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, it's one of the last letters he wrote, and he's writing it to Timothy, his protege. And in chapter 4, he says, I poured myself out like a drink offering. A drink offering is also found in the Old Testament. It was voluntary. It was called a free will offering. It was something that you could choose to give. It wasn't mandated. And Paul says, that's what my life has been like. Now, I'm looking back. I'm towards the end of my days, and I'm saying, I've poured myself out. He says the same thing in Philippians. I poured myself out for y'all. I poured myself out for the sake of these people who I've been trying to reach with the gospel. I was thinking about that with James and John in this upside down kingdom. And if you want to be great, you've got to serve. And I don't hear Jesus rebuking them, but reorienting them and saying, I get it. You want to be great. Let me tell you what greatness looks like in the kingdom that actually matters. It looks like serving. It looks like being a slave. And then I hear Paul say, I poured myself out like a drink offering. And it makes me wonder. I'm 43. So however, whatever I've got left, when I'm sitting back and looking, What have I poured my life out for? Is it stuff that matters? What have I given my affection and my attention and my money and my time and my energy to? All of us are we're pouring our life out for something because you're living it. So you're spending it. You're spending all of those things. Time, money, energy, affection, attention. All of those things are flowing from you to someone or something. What are you pouring your life out for? What about when you're freshman in high school and everything's in front of you and you can decide, this is what I'm going to pour my life out for? Some of us have gotten in the throes of career and family and maybe we've lost our way a little bit in the values and the standards of the kingdom of this world that are in, that's in our face all the time are winning and we've backburnered pouring our lives out. For others, Some of you are closer to Paul than I am in terms of your life station. I don't want you to look back with regret, but to say, what am I pouring my life out for? And with the time that I have left, whatever that is, I want to make sure I'm giving my time and attention and affection, my money and my energy to things that matter. I want to recognize what does it look like for me to be a servant? to be a slave to others, not to approach relationships from, from a what can I get out of it or this is what I deserve from it, but to say where am I giving, where am I serving? Can I with Paul at the end of my day say I poured my life out like a drink offering? It's voluntary. I'm not doing it begrudgingly. 
I'm definitely not keeping score. I'm choosing with joy in my heart to say, God, this, you, you can have it. That last scene with Bartimaeus, we've talked about this before. It's interesting to me. Jesus asked the same question to James and John and to Bartimaeus, to his two of his closest and best friends, and this stranger who he just sees on the side of the road, to both of them, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And both of them have an answer. James and John say, we want to sit at your right and your left hand, and Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And Jesus doesn't, in my reading, he doesn't rebuke any of them for their requests. He doesn't say to James and John, y'all are selfish, or you're egocentric, or you're superficial. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Here's what it looks like. And no, I can't do that. That's the father's decision. He tells them no, and he redirects them. He doesn't, he doesn't give them the words that come out of their mouth. I do think he gives them what's in their heart, which is what does it look like to, to basically be successful in the kingdom that God is advancing through Jesus? It looks like serving and being a slave to all. And to Bartimaeus, who wants to see, he touches his eyes, and, or he just speaks, and he can see. But for many of us, you want me to do for you. We wouldn't have an answer. We wouldn't have a clue how to answer the question. The reason we do those birthday things that y'all hate, the first Sunday of the month, some of you don't, you don't even come. <laughs> because they're, some of you don't want to share because you're introverts, and I get that. But many of us, we don't, it's so difficult for us to verbalize our desires. Do you think Jesus knew what Bartimaeus wanted him to do? Not because he's God, but because he can see the man is blind. Doesn't take a genius to figure it out. And yet he says, what do you want me to do for you? There's something about verbalizing desire. God's looking for that. How many of you don't raise your hand think Bartimaeus was selfish because he asked to see? Was it selfish for, of him to do that? Most people would say no. If I said, was it selfish for James and John to say, we want to sit at your right and your left hand? Most of us would say, yeah, that's pretty selfish. Tell me the difference between the two. What's the difference? The only person who benefits from Bartimaeus seeing is Bartimaeus. You don't have a family. Nobody gets anything out of it except him. But we've decided that's okay. But what James and John asked for is not okay. And for most of us, the things that we want, we put in the not okay category. We think those things are selfish. Here's a news flash. Anything you want is because you want it. If that's selfish, then every, it's all selfish then. If that's how we're defining selfishness, if, if, if anything I want is selfish, then anything I ask for is going to be selfish because those are the things that I want. Jesus doesn't rebuke James and John for their request. He tells them no, absolutely. And he redirects them, absolutely. But he doesn't crush them. Those of you have, who have kids, when, you, when they were three and four, and they said, I want a pony for my birthday, you most likely didn't crush them. You didn't say that was stupid. How could you ask for something like that? You didn't do that. You didn't do that. Most of you didn't get them a pony. But you didn't crush them for asking Many of us, we say no for God because we don't know what we want. And we don't ask him for it. 
if Jesus bodily approached you this morning and said, what do you want me to do for you? Not what do you want me to do for your spouse or your kids or in this community or in your business. What do you want me to do for you? Can you answer the question? And if the answer is no, I can't answer the question. I don't know that that's great. I think we see that as somehow saying we're content or we have everything. I don't know that that's what it is. It feels like we're probably drawing a line. Maybe we're living independent of the Lord in some areas. Most likely what it is is we have this thing of like, well, Bartimaeus is okay because he's blind. And we want the blind people to see. Or like last week with Mephibosheth, he's a cripple. He can't walk. It's okay for him. But it's not okay for me because I can walk and I can see. And there are other people who are worse off than me. There are certainly other people who are worse off than me. And thankfully, God supplies infinite. And so if he gives me what I want, it doesn't mean he's not going to give Brandon what he wants. He doesn't pick. It's not a genie where you get three wishes. His grace and his mercy and his power and his love are infinite. He's got more than enough for everybody. We're going to close with communion. And it's a, this is a tangible sign. He's got more than enough for everybody. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's a recognition. There's a book in here. What do you want from me, James and John? Here's what I came to do. I'm a king who came to serve to the point of dying. What do you want from me, Bartimaeus? What do you want me to do for you? The core of all of that is this posture as a king who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Don't rob him of that. Let him be that because that's who he is. So you take your rightful place as one who recognizes your need before him and says, this is what I want you to do for me. This is what I want. I want to see. I want to sit at your right and your left hand. Let him decide. He is more than able and more than willing to tell you no. You don't have to say no for him. He can do that just fine on his own. Your responsibility as a child is to approach him and say, this is what I want you to do for me. And it's, whether it's selfish or not at this point is irrelevant. For most of us, our issue is not that we ask too selfishly of the Lord. It's that we don't ask enough of the Lord. That we live independently of him in so many areas. He says he's a good father who desires to give good gifts to his children. And we don't give him the opportunity to do that. Most of you as adults, you can take care of yourself. You can provide for your own needs. And your parents still give you birthday and Christmas presents. And it's not because you need a new pair of socks. It's because they're your parents. Let him do that for you. Recognize your need. Express your desire. See this table, this broken bread and poured out juice. Indicating, demonstrating the depth of love that he has for you and the commitment that he has to continue to be your father. Y'all close your eyes if you would. I'm going to lead you through a couple of things you can think about. Then we'll have you come forward, take communion. The way you'll do that here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. We'll have gluten-free communion here up on the table if you prefer that. We'll also have ministry teams in the corner and we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. During communion, we particularly like to pray for people who are sick. And so if that's you, if you're sick, we would love for you to say, this is what I want. I want to be healthy. I want to be whole. 
Some of you have lived with chronic conditions for so long. When I'm saying sick, it's not even registering in your mind that you are. You read through the Gospels. Jesus heals people who've been sick for a long time. He heals men who were born blind. He heals women who've been bleeding for 12 years. Women who've been stooped over for 18 years. Just because the condition is chronic doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't desire to bring healing there. Give them an opportunity. If you do ask for healing, the teams are going to take some oil and they'll put a cross with that oil on the back of your hand, the outside of your hand. Let's pray very simply for God to heal you. We're not going to pray if it's God's will for Him to heal you that He will. We're just going to, God only does His will, so we're not worried about giving Him permission. We're just going to pray for Him to heal you. couple of things for you to think about, and please just grab onto one of them. Is there an area of your life where you feel afraid, where fear is winning? Fear usually takes root in things that are unknown about our future. Do a little quick inventory. Place where fear is winning. If there is, would you be willing this morning to make a commitment to draw near to Jesus. He doesn't stiff arm. He is open armed. He invites us to draw near to him. As you take communion, it's a reminder that the veil has been torn, that we can boldly come before the throne of grace because our sins have been forgiven. The thing that blocked us from God's presence has been taken care of. So as you come forward for communion, let that be a physical representation of a heart's desire to draw near to him. The circumstances might not change. They probably won't. But your perspective on them will. Because you draw closer. Maybe you want to take an inventory on a broader scale or from a... 30,000 feet as you look at your life what are you pouring yourself out for because you're pouring yourself out for something the kingdom that Jesus is establishing is very different from the kingdom of this world in which we live are you living as a servant are you living as a slave not begrudgingly but joyfully are you willingly voluntarily pouring yourself out as a drink offering before the Lord that's all yours whatever you want my time my affection my energy my money it's all yours I'm not looking for credit I'm not looking to be a hero or a martyr just freely giving back to you everything that you've given to me want to be great according to your standard of greatness. You may want to just think through the different facets of your life. You don't need to hear that as anything heavy again. The idea is it's a voluntary, it's a free will offering before the Lord. To joyfully give what you've received. For many of you, it's this idea of discerning your own heart. Do you know what you want? 
from the Lord. If he said, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? It's okay to say, this is what I want. I have everything I need. That wasn't the question. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? Not what do you need? Would you be willing as a son or a daughter to recover your childlikeness? To say, I want a pony. That's what I want. That's what I want you to do for me. I want to see a breakthrough in this area of my life. Whatever that area is. He's going to say yes or no. You don't need to worry about that. Our part is to ask. Verbalizing is important. He makes Bartimaeus say it. There's something about having a verbalized desire. It's riskier than just thinking it. There's more, there's a greater level of faith involved in saying something out loud than just thinking it in your mind. You're putting your you're opening yourself up, honestly, to disappointment in a way that you're not if you keep it to yourself. You may want to just come forward and just say to the prayer teams, this is what I want. Would y'all pray with me about that? Regardless, whatever's kind of going on, I want you to hear and taste and see and experience communion this morning as a demonstration of God's great love for you, the depth of his commitment to you. And whatever that stirs in your heart, you respond appropriately. So Holy Spirit, come, I pray that we would joyfully respond to your leading, that we would recognize the banquet that you have set before us, and this is just a small foretaste of that, this broken bread and poured out juice that gives us a seat at this incredible table that you've laid before us. So I pray for every man and woman, every student in this room, that we would respond in faith to your leading. In Jesus' name, amen.